0: You know, Jesus, on one occasion, he was asked a, a question um, about the teachings of Scripture. What is the most important commandment? What is the absolute foundation of what uh, the Bible is all about? This is the passage, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' Jesus replied, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind.'" This is the first and greatest commandment. And so Jesus could sum up the real heart of the Bible about it's, it's all it's about loving God. Loving God with all you've got, heart, mind, soul. One of the other translations, one of the other passages says strength as well, physically as well. So if that really is the heart of the Bible about loving God, then surely that is the most important thing we need to develop and learn about. So today my topic is loving Jesus. Loving Jesus. And Jesus is the dimension or the aspect of the Trinity we probably relate to most because Jesus, although fully divine, became fully human. And so when we think in terms of how can we love God, it's sometimes helpful to think of God in terms of Jesus. Well, we have, a, have an interesting occasion. Can I quote a, vo- uh, a verse here? Luke 7.47 It says this, Jesus speaking, "...therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown." As her great love has shown. And that was love that was expressed to Jesus. Now, Jesus actually says that um, seldom. He rarely says that of anyone, that they have great love for him. He did say it about this particular woman. So I wonder today, is there anything we can learn from her? Surely there is, about loving Jesus. And now, most of you have realized, and with the symbol there, uh, the image, that uh, I'm talking about the woman who anointed Jesus with expensive perfume. Now, a careful reading of Scripture, you realize this didn't happen just once in Jesus' life. There's actually three different occasions this happened. Let me try and prove that to you. First of all, uh, let's have a look here at John chapter 12 in the first three verses. Notice it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived. Six days before the Passover, notice that. Where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Got the idea? Where is it? It's probably at Lazarus' house. His two sisters are mentioned, most likely at Lazarus' home. Who did it? It was Mary, sister of Lazarus, and she anointed his feet Um, It was six days before Passover, so six days before the Last Supper. Um, William Barclay is one of the best commentators about New Testament culture. Um, He mentions that at that time, women often wore an alabaster. What do you mean by that? They had a necklace and it had a long kind of um, neck and a little tubular sort of bottle at the bottom of it and it had expensive perfume in it, alabasters. But when you read this passage carefully, you, you realise it couldn't have been one of those, because how much was in there? A pint or half a litre. This was a big container of the stuff, so it was much more than that. Okay, that's one example. Let's have a look at another one. This time, Matthew 26 and verse 1. This gives you the timing. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, not six, two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then I'll just jump down to verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, same town, but different home. Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar, of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Notice the differences. It's only two days before Passover. Secondly, it's not in Lazarus' house, it's in Simon the leper's house. Thirdly, she doesn't pour it on his feet, she pours it on his head. Matthew and Mark have the same story. But the one I'm going to look at today is a third account, and the one actually there's the most detail about. And this one probably took place a couple of years before the others, one to two years. Let me read this passage to you. Luke seven thirty six. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man really were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is so that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to tell you. So he either overheard Simon or guessed what he was thinking. Tell me, teacher, he said, to... People owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had enough money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one with the bigger debt cancelled, or bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman. Notice that? He's looking at the woman, but talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In the uh, television series, Jesus of Nazareth, where the woman playing uh, the sinful woman is Anne Bancroft, an Academy Award winner, and it's quite a powerful scene. They do it very well. At the end of that scene, Jesus takes her face in his hands, looks at her in the eyes, and says to her, "Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace." Very dramatic. Let me just highlight again the three different occasions. Firstly, we saw before. Um, there's there's uh, the anointing at Lazarus's home. Mary is mentioned, Lazarus is mentioned, Martha are all mentioned six days before the Passover. The next one I read was at Simon the leper's home, different house. And it was two days before the Passover. It wasn't her feet anointed. This time it was a head. And the, the passage I just read then, um, anointed now at Simon the Pharisee's house. Not Simon the leper, Simon the Pharisee. Simon was a common name and Simon Peter's another one. Simon the Pharisee's home. And the commentators generally think this was probably one to two years before the other events. Gives you a little idea of the overview. Let's dig into that passage, the main one that I read, the longer one. 744. Remember these words? He turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Now, let's try and um, just unpack that a little. I'll use some of these props here to just help me let you settle into what the culture was like of the day. So, for instance, the scenario is a little bit like this. The people are reclining around a low table. So, in the Middle East at this time, um, the tables were low. People had very low couches or cushions and they reclined. One arm propped them up and the other arm could reach out and... Munch grapes or whatever was being served. These are actually really good. <laughs> well, the setting, according to commentator William Barclay, who's very good on culture, he says, Look, most of the well to do people at that time, their houses tended to have a central courtyard, a square courtyard. So the house was built around the courtyard. The Apostle Peter, actually, Peter's house is like that too. So, Simon the Pharisee, almost certainly, his house was probably like that. So, they'd have one of these tables, much bigger one, low to the ground, they're eating in the open courtyard in the warmer weather, that's what they would do. So, they're all surrounded the table, out in an open courtyard area. Now, when a famous rabbi was coming to teach, he'd been invited to a meal, and he would be sharing around the meal, it was actually open for people to come not to sit at the table, but they could kind of be in the outskirts and listen to the pearls of wisdom shared by the rabbi. So, it's not unusual that people just came in. However, of course, this lady, known as a sinful woman, would not have been welcome, but that's why she was able to come in. Others would have done as well. We're told that she'd, you know, she learned that Jesus was coming there. Perhaps she'd heard him preach. Her heart was deeply stirred. She might have heard him a few times and got to that point where she had placed her faith in him. Her life was turned around. And she'd come to worship him in a very unorthodox way, but in a way that Jesus received as genuine love. This gives us an idea of the the setting. Um, It's probably helpful for us to realize that um, as we kind of see a picture of the culture, it helps us kind of, understand the scenario that was taking place. Let me unpack it a little further. It says in 744, second part of the verse, I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. That's the first thing he says about the woman. So in the Middle East, they um, often as someone arrived, they had one of these big kind of Feet-washing things. (laughs) And so, as the person arrived, and certainly Simon being a well-to-do Pharisee, he'd have had almost certainly one or two servants. So the normal process was as guests arrived, not for everyone, but for the guests, the invited guests, they would take their sandals off and in one of those sort of flat bowl type of containers... Fresh, cool water would be poured on their feet and they would tidy up their feet with that and then their feet would be dried. The servant would use a towel to then dry the feet. Now, that hadn't happened. Simon had neglected to do that, which tells us something. He may have been open-minded about Jesus, but he did not yet respect him. Not enough to show him the courtesy that uh, a respected rabbi would be shown. So now Jesus draws attention to this because this Pharisee is looking at that woman 's act and thinking that is disgusting. What is that woman doing she 's defiling him you know and, and Jesus is obviously not seeing it that way at all he 's saying, well actually simon you 've got some things you could learn from her you didn 't show me some common courtesies. You neglected to wash my feet when I arrived well she she 's not wet my feet with water she 's wet my feet with her own tears. Now just imagine that she has. She's, she's kind of, um, I guess, got down before Jesus' feet, bawling her eyes out. She's come to faith. It's transformed her heart. She's weeping so profusely that her tears are soaking his feet. And then she reaches her hands down upon his feet, covered now in salty tears, and she rubs those tears into his feet, the dust of the road coming clean. And then she uses her own hair, like a towel, and dries his feet with it. What a humbling act. Imagine that, ladies. Some of you with long hair, using your hair like a towel to dry a man's dampened feet. Extraordinary humility. But Jesus saw it as love. He saw it as worship. Worship. You know... Um, When we think of the word humility, uh, sometimes we have a misunderstanding of the word. Um, We think humility is about putting yourself down. Well, you look up a dictionary, it'll say humility is a sober estimate of yourself, not about putting yourself down. Um, Interestingly, Moses is referred to in the Scriptures as a very humble man. I'll read the verse, Numbers 12.3. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. He had a massive profile. He led a huge nation out of Egypt. Um, But he was a humble man. Why? I want to suggest that his humility was based on the fact he was focused on God, not himself. Because a biblical understanding of humility is actually an absence of self. Not putting yourself down, not praising yourself up. It's an absence of self. Your focus, rather, is on the Lord. Where is this woman's focus? It's certainly on Jesus. The fact that she would come into a place where she knew the, the Pharisee, Simon, would be so judgmental of her. No, no doubt he had other Pharisee friends there. They would have been the people that would have been most judgmental of this woman. Why? Well, both the commentators, William Barclay and Leon Morris, two of the best in the field, they both think the way the passage is written, where she's known as a notorious sinner, she's almost certainly a prostitute. The fact that she had her hair out. Women, when they were married, they'd put their hair up and they'd only have it out in the home. Young girls would have their hair out and prostitutes would have their hair out. That was part of the culture. Her hair was clearly out. It all fits with what those commentators would say. So, believe me, the religious leaders would have absolutely despised her. A wicked, sinful woman. And yet, it didn't stop her. Why? Because her focus was not on, she knew they'd be hating her, but it wasn't on them, it was on Jesus. And that is actually the heart of what humility is about in the Bible. You're not focused on yourself, you're focused on Jesus. Can I suggest this? We learn from her this. Number one, express love to Jesus with humility. Express love to Jesus with humility. How do we do that? I sometimes think there's enough, not enough reverence or awe before God. Certainly in our modern churches, we're very good at raising hands and clapping. The celebrative style of worship is there, and that's very important. It's very biblical. But I do believe there needs to be a place for humility. Um, Some of the prayer meetings uh, I've conducted over the years, often in prayer meetings, people are on their face before God. And often there is tears. I remember one prayer meeting, it was on floorboards, and the floorboards, after that couple of hours, perhaps up to three hours of prayer, the floorboards were wet. So many people were weeping. Let's just have a think about that. How can I be more humble in my prayer life? I'd love to think that we can do that in our church. I know that there's not a lot of room here between the seats. But certainly if you're on the end of an aisle, I could see people coming, stepping forward, kneeling down, face to the floor in a moment of worship. How can I be humble in my worship to the Lord? Let's have a look at the next passage. Jesus' next statement is this 745 You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. A little bit about the culture of the time. It would be normal for the host, as the rabbi arrives, to place a hand on the shoulder and kiss the side of his cheek. Part of the culture. I had a friend called um, Peter Nathan. He was Jewish. He's in one of my churches and he lived just around the corner from me. So I went around to his place two or three times for a meal. When I would come through the door, Peter would give me a hug and smack a big kiss either side of my cheek. (laughs) bit uncomfortable for a bloke but that was part of his culture now that would be the normal response to an honored rabbi the fact again that simon didn't do this it just meant he didn't respect jesus open to finding out more about him but didn't respect him so now he uses this woman as an example to the well-to-do pharisee to say there's stuff you can learn from her simon no um Although the kiss and the welcome certainly showed a sign of respect, it also showed a sign of warmth, friendship, and affection for the person. And what I want to suggest of the woman here is she is bowed down, kissing Jesus' feet. It certainly displays affection, doesn't it? Now, we may not be able to kiss Jesus' feet physically physically, showing affection, but can we kiss Jesus feet spiritually? Can we show affection to Jesus? King David, a man who writes about half the Psalms, and about half of those Psalms are filled with words of affection, words of love. Look at this here. Psalm 36, 5 through 9, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies, your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see the light. Can I suggest this? Number two, what do we learn from this woman about expressing love to Jesus? Express love to Jesus with affection. Express love to Jesus with affection. And one of the things that I sometimes do to get my heart in that, that place of, of feeling love for Jesus is I'll often uh, grab uh, acoustic guitar, a few songs, and I've printed out a long time ago, I went through the Bible and um, took as many passages as I could find that were worshipful, filled with words of affection to God. A lot of Psalms, a lot of other passages too. So I've got like a whole bunch of them in a folder. And so often what I'll do is I'll be singing worship songs, reading those Psalms and other passages to God and praying words of worship, words of love. I know many of us read the Bible and many of us pray, but can I suggest also we need to take time out to Genuinely worship. Express words of affection to the living God. It's a choice. It's it's an an act where we're actually saying, I'm going to make a priority of doing this. Um, Of course, we read in the Psalms quite often, don't we? Sing a new song to the Lord. And often that happens for me. I tend to write songs. And so often words will just come out as I'm with God. This is one of those examples. I started singing these words to God. Consumed by your splendor, adrift in your majesty, I know your glory fills this place. Overwhelmed by your beauty, lost in your holiness, I know your presence fills this place. And with passion, I worship you, Lord, left speechless in breathtaking awe. Consumed by your grace, consumed by your love, drenched in your presence, and I can't get enough. Now, not all of us can write a song because that's got melody and music and everything with it, but not all of us are songwriters. But any of us can write a psalm to God, a poem to God. And can I suggest as one of our applications, why don't you take some time to do that? Spend some time with the Lord, deliberately choosing to develop your love relationship with Him and write some words of affection to the living God. I remember um, a few years ago in my last church, actually we had a moment where we in a small group. That's exactly what we did. And we did actually something where we had a table like this and communion served around the table. Um, But before we went into the communion part, we actually took out about 12, perhaps 15 minutes of our time where everyone was to write a psalm of affection to the Lord. And then as part of our worship after communion, we would read those psalms of worship personally written as, as an act of worship, which people did. I must admit I was impressed with what people had written in that short period of time. It was one my daughter, Evangeline, wrote at that meeting. She was about 16 at the time. She wrote this. Your love is like the sweetest honey, (laughs) soothing to the soul and nourishing to the body, your perfect creation. My body, paper under my writer's hand, the most beautiful poetry in flesh, your own image. Your love is like the sweetest music, me, your damaged yet daunting instrument, tuned into your overflowing love. Now my life is like sweet like cinnamon. You have pulled me out of my wreck and gently pulled me safe to shore. I was struck, drowning in an endless abyss of lies and destruction. My life is owed to you, for you have rescued me from the impossible because your love is impossible. Let's think about that application this week. Can I get alone with God? And write a psalm of affection to him as an act of worship, developing my love for the Lord. One more, one more thing that he says to Simon. 7.46 of Luke, You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You know, as part of the culture, apparently, that uh, one of the things that sometimes was done in the Middle East at the time is the host might uh, put a a small amount of what was oil, uh, rose oil, uh, was made from distilled rose petals, and it would just pour on the head, just a little bit of that. Well, Simon didn't do that. Uh, And another part of the culture, too, was that sometimes... Uh, people were given the opportunity to freshen up. they have been travelling the dusty roads and um, there would be a little area, I guess modern term might be like a little parlour, but the idea is as the guest comes in, their feet are cleaned and then they might go into that little room and take some oil, just olive oil, and flick it through the hair, neaten it up again after the dust of the road. Um, Simon Hadn't offered either of those things to Jesus. And of course, his strong contrast is, the woman has done this for me, or a version of this. But of course, she didn't put oil on his head, and olive oil, of course, is relatively cheap. Rather, she poured perfume, not on his head, but on his feet. And that perfume was extremely expensive. Just to read the Mark version, which is the only one I haven't read today, let me give you an idea of the cost of it and we're presuming it would be the same sort of perfume, Mark 14, 3 through 6, "...while he was in Bethany reclining at, at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She took the jar and poured the perfume on his head." Some of those present were indignantly saying to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages. You notice that? could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to, to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. When you see this contrast as well, There's no doubt it was the same sort of perfume that the woman in Luke had poured over Jesus' feet. It's striking, isn't it? A year's wages. (laughs) Mate, what would that be in Melbourne? Well, I did a little bit of research. Apparently, the median salary, what do I mean by median salary? I mean 50% of people in Melbourne earn more, 50% earn less. The median salary in in Melbourne is $95,000 per annum. And some of you are probably thinking, well, I wish I was earning that. (laughs) Well, apparently that's the average. So this woman has poured something of that value. A hundred grand. It's worth of stuff on Jesus' feet. And as Judas says in the John version, what a waste! It could have been given to to the poor. But John, when he's writing his gospel, identifies it's not that Judas cared about the poor... It's just being treasurer of the team, he used to help himself to the money. (laughs) Can I suggest this for our third point? Express love to Jesus with extravagance. Express love to Jesus with extravagance. There's time when extravagance, extravagance is appropriate. Um. Travelling around um, England and Europe, sometimes you can get a little bit, I don't know, perhaps judgmental of the beautiful cathedrals and so forth that are around and how much money would have been spent on them. But um, I've certainly felt soundly rebuked at times. I remember coming into one of these beautiful cathedrals, huge thing, big Anglican church, um, magnificent stained glass windows and all sorts of statues. It's just absolutely gorgeous building. And as I came into the building, um, we were just kind of doing a tour of it. I'll tell you what, that, the, the lady on the tour and the whole church were highly evangelistic. Mate, she's sharing the gospel with me. She's giving me gospel tracts. And I thought, this really is a center of worship. And all this ornate beauty is drawing people to the place during the week, all the time, checking it out. And God is using it. God is using it. There's, there's a place for extravagance when it comes to God's house. When it comes to worship. You know, I wonder what um, you and I could do. How could we apply something like this? Well, I wonder if uh, you write the Lord a psalm. I wonder if you took that psalm that you've written and uh, had it professionally engraved on glass or something like that and make it a centerpiece in your lounge. It would cost a fair bit of dough to do that. But as an act of extravagant worship. um, It could be a piece of artwork vividly displaying the reality of God. It might be expensive. Place that in your home as an act of worship. I remember once, um, actually, Pamela and I never spend money on art normally. In fact, any piece of art normally around our houses, we got for free. (laughs) But one time we did. One time we bought a piece of art. And it was this um, kind of a 3D thing where there's a cross. And it's linking heaven to earth, touching heaven and earth. It's got the symbol of the Holy Spirit with all these doves. It's got a single star image of the birth of Christ. And it's all this imagery within it. And we had it in our lounge for years. And it was, sometimes it would be a talking point with unchurched people. We've got it now at the entrance of your house just as you open the front door. But um, what can we do? What can we do? If you're a songwriter, you could create a song for Jesus, have it professionally recorded as an act of worship. You know, I remember um, uh, one of the members of um, my church's last board, uh, that person was sharing a little bit about an Alpha International Conference that they had been to recently. And as one of the meals uh, part of that conference, uh, it was uh, kind of to raise people's awareness of the financial needs of Alpha. And the chap was saying in our board meeting, with tears in his eyes, interestingly enough, he was saying one of the people there in that that meeting had committed to give half a million dollars to Alpha every year for three years. And uh, he was very moved by this. He was a wealthy man himself. Um, And you might think, yeah, well, that's easy for someone who's got lots of dough. But, you know, the people who do that sometimes... They give away 90% of their income and live on just 10%. Why do they do it? It's as an act of extravagant worship to God to see his kingdom built. The sinful woman took a pint or half a litre of pure nard Caught it all over Jesus' feet. Now, if she was a prostitute, as the commentators believe she was, two things this was used for. was not only to make her smell sweet, but it was also considered, because it was antiseptic, it was also considered a preventative of venereal disease. You might say a tool of her trade. The fact, in her act of pouring the whole amount, 100 grand's worth of the stuff on Jesus' feet, it was actually a way of saying, my old life is gone. I'm leaving it. I'm now going to become a follower of Jesus. In conclusion, let me read that verse again. 747. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. As her great love has shown. Her great love. How can we be people that Jesus would look upon one of us and say, They have great love for me? Well, there are some things to learn from that, that woman. Three things we've learned today express love to Jesus with humility. Affection and extravagance. Express love to Jesus with humility, affection and extravagance. Now, can I suggest to you and I, in conclusion, if we're going to take time out to do some of the things I've suggested today—not just be meeting with the Lord in in the Word of God and in prayer, but actually doing deliberate things of work, acts of worship—to foster that love relationship. It means we're going to have to drop something. You can't just keep adding things to your world. It means you need to do less of something else. What is it? Well, I might be watching less Netflix or whatever you tune into. Less YouTube, less time on Facebook, less social media, less time in a hobby, less time socialising. If you have a highly driven career, perhaps less time in your career. It's making a bit of space... To do the most important thing. Remember Jesus summed up the Bible as saying, loving God. That's the most important thing. Loving God. As the worship team returns, let's pray together. Father, here today, as we've been reminded that you look upon someone and... uh, You can see some in this world, in this planet, some Christians have great love. We see an example of this in Scripture, and we pray here today that we might be people who would see the priority of fostering great love for you, that that would become a priority. So Lord, help us in this journey. As we reflect on some of the things that we've learned from the woman in this particular passage, help us to know how we can bring something of that application into our world, that we might be a loving follower of Jesus. So Lord, guide us, help us and grow us in this, we pray, because more than anything else, we want to be people of worship who love the living God. All glory to Jesus, we pray. Amen.